This morning we will be looking together in God's Word at 2 Peter chapter 3, one verse, that is verse 13. Last few Sunday mornings we have examined together Peter's teaching on the day of the Lord, that great and frightful day of judgment and fire that is coming upon not only this earth, but the entire cosmos, the heavens and earth, the current heavens and earth. He is responding, Peter is, to the mocking of false teachers and those unbelievers in the world who ask the question, where is the promise of Christ's coming? Where is the fulfillment of God's promises? And Peter has been unfolding an an argument to expose the idiocy and the folly of that line of ridicule. You're standing on ground that was created by the word of the Lord. The heavens declare the glory of God and the heavens and the earth are clearly the creation of God. It's easier to believe that, certainly, than it is to believe that somehow all the complexity of what we see somehow developed out of some primordial goo. All of creation evidence is design, is the handiwork of God. And so it is by the word of God that the heavens and earth exist. And God has spoken that his son will return, as we sang this morning, take back his earth. And this morning we'll learn, not only will Christ reign on this earth, but at the close of that thousand-year kingdom of Christ on this earth, God will make a new heavens and earth. This morning our meditation is just one verse, but oh, is it sweet. And I have intentionally slowed down. I have been planning to take one Sunday morning on this one verse Because if I could, I would have this verse just in your soul as a Christian. That this this would orient your life. I I really mean this. I, I pray this morning, not so much the sermon, but that this text, this one little verse, for some of you here, you know Christ, but I pray that this morning, this could be a whole new reorientation of your Christian life. And with that, let's give attention to the reading of God's word. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. But according to his, that is God's promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Amen is God's word. We just sang a prayer. Let's pause and pray one more time. Oh God, we pray, as we have already sung, that you would speak now, not only through the reading of your word, but through the preaching. We pray that your Holy Spirit would do his wonderful, mysterious work of sorting through our hearts and our minds, taking your word to 
deep recesses of our hearts, and that you would plant this truth deep in us as we sing. We ask this for your honor and your glory, our promise-giving and promise-keeping God. Amen. It's a powerful and majestic little verse. It follows, as I've already stated, after Peter has been refuting the mocking and the ridicule and the unbelief of false teachers, which has been discouraging sincere believers. Men and women who have heard the good news of salvation from judgment through faith in Jesus, and they've been believing in Christ, and they're believing that God has in the future salvation for them. And yet, they're living in this world year after year, decade after decade. By now, it's approaching the end of Peter's life, and he likely died around A.D. 68. Nearly 40 years have passed since Christ began his earthly ministry and three years later was crucified and resurrected and ascended. Nearly four decades and Christ has not returned. And already those who don't, don't believe the promises of God, don't believe the word of God, are already mocking, already ridiculing earnest, sincere believers who take God's word at face value and are anxiously longing for the return of Jesus, King Jesus. And if that was the case then, what about now? <laughs> not four decades, not some 40 years later, but almost 2,000 years later. What about us? What about our day? Increasingly, we find not so much that the promise is ridiculed by those outside of Christianity. That's a given. It's just assumed Many people in our culture today and in the world don't even know about what the Bible says anymore. Rather, the greatest mocking in our day largely comes from within the professing Christian church. Increasingly, among those who say they believe the Bible, who say they believe in Jesus, that he died on the cross, even increasingly among those, there's a diminishing or a downplaying of what the Bible has to say about the future coming of Christ, about the reign of Christ on this earth during a thousand years that Revelation clearly speaks of, and then a new heavens and a new earth. The neglect of what the Bible has to say about things to come, about the future, has been so great that many numbers of untold Christians really don't have much of an idea of what's in store more than, well, I know that Jesus died on the cross for my sins so that I can go to heaven. It's about all they have as far as hope. And that's a good hope. I'm not diminishing the fact that Christ died on the cross for our sins. Praise God that Jesus did. But the idea of heaven, even since I was a boy, I, I remember that was generally what I understood, that one day I would go to be with God in heaven. But that for a little boy, maybe in particular, that's, that's very challenging. Uh, little boys tend to think that means I'm going to be sitting in a church service for eternity. And uh, 
wow, I like to run and play and do all kinds of neat things. Um, heaven, what is heaven? I couldn't get my head around it. I mean, I don't know what heaven's like. I've never been there. I have maybe little inklings in the scriptures, but streets of gold and so forth. And I really don't know what heaven's like. I've never been there. I don't know, no, no one else uh, has been there that we know. So that means that my, my hope is very undefined. I know that I can be forgiven of my sins, and that is wonderful. I no longer have guilt before God. I, I no longer have fear of hell, of judgment. But positively, I don't know what I'm really looking forward to. And I fear that for many professing Christians, maybe particularly those who are younger, but young and old, what that can translate into is, is a clinging to this life because what the Bible says about the future has been so neglected, it's so undefined, that there's a generation of Christians who frankly think, I believe God, I believe his promises, I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins, I just don't want to miss out on what good things are here and now. And and that's understandable. And God has given us good gifts here and now. This morning is a good gift. And it is so timely. I was thinking on the way over this morning, oh God, thank you. Thank you for giving us this day. It's going to help me in my sermon, I think. Um, for numerous reasons, but maybe that'll become more clear as we come along, go along. It's a beautiful day, and so we are to enjoy days like this. We enjoy food, we enjoy family, we enjoy friendship and companionship, we enjoy laughter, we enjoy singing, all these things. Somehow, in our day, with the neglect of what the Bible has to say about the kingdom of God to come. We've been left with very little to look forward to, I fear. And so I hope this morning in God's word that we can correct that a little bit. I want to help you. I want to look at verse 13. We want to look at, I want to break down the verse. There's really three components to this verse. Very simple. First, the fulfillment of God's promise. Peter says, according to his promise. We're going to look at that first, the promise of God. Second, the new heavens and the new earth. We're going to consider that for a few moments. According to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth. Third, the phrase, in which righteousness dwells. In which righteousness dwells. These are the three components or parts of this beautiful verse, and that is how we're going to break down our consideration the rest of our time this morning. First, let's look together at the fulfillment of God's promise. Peter says, according to God's promise, he's emphasizing that God has promised. Calling sincere believers, back over in chapter 3, verse 2, to remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets, and the commandment of the Lord and Savior by your apostles. He's calling sincere believers back to the scriptures given by the prophets and the apostles of Christ. He's calling sincere believers to not giving up, to not give up on clinging to every promise 
every promise that God gives about his son, about himself, about what he will give to his people in the future. It's promised. And this is our religion. I know as an aside, some immediately will say Christianity isn't religion, it's a relationship. I'm not a big fan of that phrase. Christianity is a religion. I mean, it is a relationship. It's more than just going through the routines. But Christianity is a religion. It's defined by worship, worship of God. It's, it's more than just your personal relationship with God. If Christianity isn't religion, then we just, just go home and out in the woods and just have a talk with God this morning. God has called for worship, both now and in the future. And our religion, Christianity, the one and only true faith, is a religion of faith. It can be explained by, really, if you think about, rather, the entire history of mankind. Think with me for a moment. The entire history of mankind, of men and women, can be explained by four basic realities. First, God gives his promises to mankind as to what he will do. God says to Adam and Eve, do this, don't do this. If you do this, this will happen. If you do this, this will happen. God promises Abraham, Abram initially. God promises to Isaac and Jacob, promise after promise after promise after promise. So the history of mankind be explained by these four basic realities. Number one, God makes his promise to mankind as to what he will do. Secondly, men and women either believe or do not believe that promise of God. Third, God fulfills his promises. He already has some of them. He promised to Eve and and through the Old Testament that one would come, a son of David, a descendant of David. He has come. Christ has been born of a virgin. He has lived. He has died. He has risen from the dead. So God gives his promises. Secondly, men or women either believe or don't believe those promises. Thirdly, God fulfills his promise. And fourthly, men and women experience either eternal blessing or judgment based upon whether or not they believe the promises of God. The entire history of mankind can be summed up. For that, maybe there's a fault in that line of argument. But that's what our history is. God creating us, making us promises. We then believe or do not believe. God always fulfills his promises. And then men or women will spend eternity based upon whether or not they believed the promise of God. I took a moment to emphasize that because our entire religion... Our entire faith is one of faith. It's one of promise. That may be obvious to you. That's obvious, Pastor Gabe. But increasingly, in the professing church, that's not what our religion or our faith is about. Not preeminently. Because that doesn't go over so well. Believing in a God that you cannot see, who spoken and has had his word recorded in a book that is very, very old, that doesn't sell well. And so increasingly, what Christianity is about as it's pitched today 
Is it benefits to you? Personally, psychologically, relationally, financially, culturally, politically. And while there certainly is much benefit to being a Christian, beyond telling really, to have the wisdom of God, to have the resources, to have hope, to be encouraged, to think sanely about living in this world, to have better relationships. While all that is true, mark it, what we are about is, is not first and foremost any of those things. We are here this morning, firstly, and really ultimately, singularly, because we are people who are believing in a God we cannot see, who gave a book that we believe is holy, inerrant, inspired, and we are here this morning because we believe that what he promised was fulfilled in the past, we believe that what he promised will be fulfilled in the future. That's why we're here. If that's not why you're here... um, I was hoping for something different. I'm sorry. We understand that that's utter folly to most men and women. They they don't want that. They want something really useful right now. But we are ready to be counted as fools in the eyes of the world because we believe that what God has said he will do, he will do. How do you explain real Christians and true churches? What Peter calls uh, these believers sincere, up in chapter 3, verse 1, he, he tells them they have a sincere mind. How do you explain or identify a sincere or real Christian or a sincere or real Christian church? What's the defining characteristic? They are men and women who have read or heard the promises of God in his scriptures and have truly, sincerely, earnestly, vigorously, tenaciously believed them in their fullness. In other words, we are promise of God people. We are promise of God people or people of the promises of God. Yes, first and foremost, the gospel promise, which centers on God's Son, Jesus Christ, who came and became a man, a true man, the eternal Son of God, taking on flesh, becoming like us, so that he could live a life of obedience unto God that Adam did not live, Eve did not live, you have not lived, I have not lived. He fulfilled the law of God perfectly as a man in our place. And then on the cross and in his sufferings, took in and upon himself all of the full, unchecked, unmitigated justice of God due you and me for our sins. He took it in our place. He suffered the wrath of God, the righteous wrath of God for our sins. And therefore, because the penalty of sin is death, he literally died on the cross. Not as a victim, but as a victor. Crying out, it is finished. Knowing what he came to do. 
to live for his people, to die for his people, bearing our sins away on the cross so that justice has been fulfilled. Our sins have been propitiated. The the wrath of God has been propitiated, turned away from us. And then he died. He, He bore the penalty and then he rose for us. And now he is ascended and he is interceding for us. This gospel that centers on the cross work of Christ, yes, that is the heart of what we believe. But that is the door, if, if you will, the glorious door, the unparalleled, preeminent door unto, into what God has promised to his people who are in Christ. We are a backward-looking people continually. The Bible, if we are Bible people, we are remembering people We are constantly singing about, talking about, praying about what God has done in the past, especially what God's Son Jesus did at the cross. But that is not all. Peter says in verse 13, according to his promise, we are looking for. Looking for. That's a forward stance. We don't just look back. We look forward. ultimate promise of God, listen, is not merely some kind of inner peace. Oh, yes, God gives that to his people both now and ultimately we will have peace or shalom that permeates the depths of our soul and our minds. But the ultimate promise of God is not some kind of inner peace or mere psychological well-being. In other words, we... Don't just believe in Jesus Christ crucified so we can get over our guilty guilt about the past or feel better now or so forth. (laughs) Believing in Christ helps us. We rejoice that we are washed, that we are cleansed, that we can go to bed at night knowing that we are beloved of God, adopted of God, that we are forgiven of our sins. Yes and yes and a thousand times amen. But that's not all. And if you stop there, maybe unintentionally, you're you're dishonoring God. That's not all he has for his people. Never what he intended for his people. That's not all. He makes you a new creation in Christ so that one day you may, with Christ, live forever in his new creation of a new earth. And a new heaven. Did you get that from Pastor Gabe? What, what have you been reading lately? Second Peter chapter 3, verse 13. It's there. I, don't, I want you to look at it. I want that verse to go into your eyeballs and to be written into your bones. We are looking for the promise of a new heavens and a new earth. We are looking forward. The ultimate promise is the creation of a new heavens and a new earth where we will forever live with and serve God and Christ in his kingdom. Let me say that again. The ultimate promise that God has made is the creation of a new heavens and new earth where we as believers will live with 
and serve God and Christ in his kingdom world without end. That is the ultimate promise of the Bible. That is God's promise. It's a big one if you haven't noticed. And Peter makes it a very personal promise. Chapter 3, verse 13. But according to Isaiah. That's not what he says, is it? He's actually referencing Isaiah, and we'll see that in a moment. But no. He says according to his promise. Whose promise? God's promise. God's promise. According to his promise. Very personal, you see. Now, where did Peter get that? Where did he get this idea that God's promised to believers to live forever in a new heavens and a new earth? I'm glad you asked. Isaiah 65. You can turn there with me if you'd like. We'll look at Isaiah 65, verse 17. Isaiah 65 and 66 should be two chapters in your Bible that you are very familiar with and love. Isaiah 65, 17. God has, through Isaiah, been ministering to his beleaguered remnant of promise-believing Jews who have been trampled down and, and at the time of the writing of Isaiah have just heard that one, one day soon the Babylonians are going to come and just like the Assyrians did over Israel in the north, the Babylonians are going to come and they're going to run over Judah and overthrow Jerusalem and very depressing news. And God is wanting to comfort his people. Remember Isaiah 40, comfort, comfort my people. God comforts his people with his promises about the future. And in particular, in chapter 65, verse 17, God promises, for behold, in other words, wake up, I want your attention. I mean, whenever God speaks, we ought to have our attention. But when he says, behold, I mean, we should underline it. We should highlight it. We should let it sink into our ears. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. God is, through this prophecy, fast-forwarding, and it's, it's in the present tense because it's as good as done. It doesn't mean he's somehow mystically doing it in Isaiah's day, and it's not as though he's mystically somehow doing it in this day. This is not the new earth. This is the old earth. And as we'll see in a moment, it's kind of tired. God is going to create new heavens, that is, new galaxies, new cosmos. He's not talking about the the heaven where he dwells. The new heavens and new earth and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. What does he mean by that? It doesn't mean that no one will, believers won't remember anything from the past. Rather, what he means is that anything that brings pain or sorrow or regret and so on and so forth will not come to mind. We saw this last Sunday morning that 
That is, in part, explains why God is going to bring fire upon the current earth and the current cosmos. The stars and all of it is going to disintegrate and down to the very elements. Why? In part, because God is going to remove by fire and purge, purify this earth, remove every vestige, every remnant of memory about evil and about idolatry and about violence and about wickedness. This time we live in now, the reality is that it doesn't take much to remind us of sorrow. We hear a song and we sorrow. We, we go to somewhere and we remember something that terrible that, was, that happened. We visit places of, of great violence where there are memorials. There are reminders all over the place of the consequences of sin and death. God is going to make a new heavens and a new earth. He's going to burn up and remove the old earth, this present earth and the present heavens. And he's going to make a brand new one, a new one. And he says, verse 18, be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing in her people for gladness. It's a wonderful, joyous new heavens and new earth. And then turn over to Isaiah 66, verses 22 and 23. God, through Isaiah, restates his promise. I mean, it's a given. In fact, God references the certainty of the new heavens and the new earth as a reference point for the certainty that he will bless his people and his, ultimately his son, Jesus, and his offspring. That is, his spiritual children, all believers. For just as the new heavens and the new earth which I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. New heavens and the new earth are stated by God as an absolute certainty. And in that new heavens and new earth, verse 23, it shall be from new moon to new moon, Sabbath to Sabbath, all mankind will come to bow down before me, says the Lord. There'll be worship in that new heavens and new earth. Worship. So, here in Isaiah 65 and 66, and then Peter restates it and references Isaiah in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. Peter is asserting that Isaiah's prophecies were and are, in fact, the very words of God. God has promised. We are looking for a new heavens and a new earth. That's increasingly mocked today, often thought of as an area of contention. And, and look, we may have you know, slight differences on, um, I don't know, some particulars, but this is absolute orthodoxy. In other words, if you don't believe God is going to create a new heavens and a new earth, you are outside Christianity. You have wandered from the faith. That's how serious this is. That's how clear this is. 
This is not in the category of up for grabs. It is stated clearly, repeatedly in scriptures, and Peter, the lead apostle of the church, states, we are looking for this. So this is the promise of God. The promise of God. We are looking for, living for, the coming of Christ, and with Christ, his kingdom come, and ultimately the creation of a new heavens and a new earth. This is the whole orientation of Scripture. You say, it is? Yes. From the very beginning, God, when God created the, this current earth, the current heavens, God created it and he said it was good. It was created for a place where man and woman could live together in peace and joy and could rule over this earth and manage it. Where God would dwell with mankind in perfect peace. But through Adam and Eve's sin, this world was placed under the curse. And in Romans chapter 8, Verse 18, Paul says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Verse 21, he says, The creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That will take place during the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ, but it will find its ultimate realization, the renewal of creation through a recreation, a recreating of earth and of the heavens. This is the orientation of Scripture. This is the longing and the groaning, as it were, of creation itself, a new heavens and a new earth. So secondly, now we've, we've considered the promise of God. Let's look that second phrase, which we've already considered a little bit, a new heavens and a new earth. A new heavens and a new earth. It's just several things I want you, they're very basic, I just want you to recognize. God is using in his word references, reference points that his people understand. I understand that our minds cannot fully grasp the glories to come. Of course. But I don't know what heaven's like. Earlier I was saying as a little boy, I I don't know what heaven's like. I mean, the Bible tells me a little bit about it, but I know what earth is like. Even this corrupt, fallen earth. I, as I was coming here this morning... I was thinking, I wonder what the ideal temperature range is for men and women created in God's image to exist. But I don't know exactly, but I'm guessing whatever the temperature was this morning on my drive-in with the window down, that's it. It's at least in the range. See, I, I know that. I can feel the sun warmth and then I can feel the cool of the shade. I know what it is to walk on grass with bare feet. Bare feet. 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 I know what it is to 
jump in the ocean. Although I guess in the new earth there won't be an ocean, but there'll be water because there'll be a temple where water's flowing from the throne. I know what it is to, on a morning like this, to hear birds singing. I know what it is to eat fruit. Looking forward to apples. Hasn't been a very good year, I guess, for them, but still we'll enjoy the apples that we have. See, I know what earth is like. Even this fallen, corrupt earth, still under the kindness of God, has enough evidences of his original creation. I know what that is. And God essentially points to this little globe and says, that, dear ones, my beloved children, I'm going to make a new one of those. Count on it. Oh, you mean a globe hanging in space? Yes, you know that space with all those galaxies and those stars? I'm going to make a new heavens. You know that heavens? I'm going to make a new one of those too. Oh, I know what that is. I can look up at night and even, even though I'm, my eyesight's getting worse as the years go by, I can still, especially on those cold winter nights that are coming, I can look up and I can see stunning vistas of galaxies and stars and the satellites that get out of the way as they're going by. I know what that is. You know what that is. God says in his holy and errant inspired word, I'm going to make a new earth. You know what that is. I'm going to make it brand new. And those heavens, I'm going to make that. I'm going to make that new. Peter says we are looking for new heavens and a new earth. Some of our hymns over the last several hundred years unintentionally have not helped us. We sing one frequently. The line is, On heaven's blissful shore, His goodness we'll adore, Singing forevermore. Hallelujah. I love that hymn. I'm going to keep picking it. As long as you understand that believer, what you're looking forward to is not this ethereal existence someday on heaven somewhere far off. That is not what the Bible teaches. You are going to have a resurrected, glorious body like under the body of the Lord Jesus Christ with which you walk and with which you talk. And you are going to walk on a ultimately new earth. It's not inaccurate to say that we will live forever in heaven with God if or as long as you understand that what Revelation promises, the Word of God promises, is that in that future day, heaven itself and the throne of God in the new Jerusalem will have come down to a new earth So in that sense, yes, you will live in heaven forever with God because you will be living on the new earth that he has made and he will have come down and we will be with God forever. Let's look at this. Some of you might right now thinking, oh boy, pastor's telling me I'm not going to live in heaven with God forever. I've always thought I was going to live with God in heaven You're going to live in heaven, but heaven is going to literally, with God, be on earth. The new earth. 
Where do I get that from? Revelation 21. Just reflecting, I sounded a little bit grumpy there. I've been noticing lately, when I get excited, I tend, sometimes sound grumpy. Those of you who know that I'm nice, you, you know I'm not, but I've got to work on that. I'm actually really excited about this, really happy. And I just really, really want you to be happy and excited about it too. Revelation 21. John, the apostle of Christ, says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. You see? Isaiah 65, Isaiah 66, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. God fulfills his promise. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away by fire, as we learned from Peter. And there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle or the dwelling place of God is among men. And he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. What a promise. And so... When I think about the fulfillment of God's promise of a new heavens and a new earth, I don't think about some ghost-like experience in heaven far off. Redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, descendant of David, who will come and reign on this earth, and then reign on a new earth and a new heaven. When I think about the fulfillment of God's promises, I look at what I know and what I can, then I consider what it will be like when God makes all things new. Cleansed of all evil, even the memories of evil. This morning, as I was thinking about this, as I was listening to birds sing outside, it's what a beautiful sound. It's one of the sounds that meets us when we know spring is here, the birds have returned. The wrens already left, already ditched us to go south, I guess. But some of them are still sticking around. The bluebirds, I don't know, they may have left. But some of the more hardy little birds, they're sticking around and they're still singing their songs. And so when I think about the future, a new earth and a new heaven, I let my mind wander a little bit. Wow, what kind of bird sounds will I hear then? With perfect hearing. I think about what it will be like to walk. I'm going to have a body. I mean, what else? What are you going to do with your resurrected legs? Eat. I think of what it will be to walk for long walks and talks with my friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ. No schedule. Don't have to worry about getting tired. I think about 
what kind of trees my Lord will make in his new earth. Glorious trees. Beautiful oaks that will be massive and we'll maybe walk under their canopies and look up at them and praise our God for his magnificence. I think of what it will be like to join untold number of Christ's people and join them with joy in the new Jerusalem on earth to sing praises to him. I think of what it will be like to be in a crowd like that and to see our king exalted in glory and splendor and for us to praise him together. You're going, believer, to dwell with God in Christ in a new earth, on a new earth, in a new heavens. And God will be there. Christ will be there. That's what I look forward to. And I want to encourage you that your looking forward anticipation becomes more concrete. Don't, don't engage in speculation. Don't get weird or wacky. Just look at the good things that God has given on this earth. And in faith and anticipation, wonder a little bit how wonderful it's going to be. Especially thirdly and finally this morning and quickly. We look forward to not just a new heavens and a new earth, a new earth which, where we will be with God and Christ and where we will experience joys unending. I just have to say, what could possibly be boring about a, a new earth? I, I forgot to mention the animals except the birds. And I won't have to worry about them eating me. Right now, um, it's actually beautiful outside, but we've got tons of those. Uh, I haven't told people in my family yet, but we've got tons of those hornets around with the little white tail. And so I know there's a massive nest around the perimeter of the property somewhere in the grass where I can't see. And right now I'm thinking, when am I, if I'm working on wood or whatever, going to stumble upon that and pay for it? Well, that won't happen then. I won't worry about stepping on a yellow jacket nest. Dinosaurs? I don't think that's speculation. It'll be wonderful, but most of all, thirdly and finally, this third phrase in 2 Peter 3.13, in which righteousness dwells. Righteousness, just notice, won't just exist, it will dwell. It's not going to come and go. Righteousness isn't going to visit. Righteousness, that is God's good, gracious ways, his law will be so manifest and extensive as to be the absolute unqualified norm. Because the gospel is that God, through Christ, by his spirit, gives to his people a new heart, takes out their heart of stone and gives them a heart of flesh. And on that heart of flesh, God writes his law upon the heart. 
And the one day we'll be in that new earth, in that new heaven. When we think of, and when we're looking for, remember what Peter's saying, we're looking for. He's, he's telling us, believers do this regularly. We are people who are regularly looking for, longing for the promise of Christ's coming and of the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. We now are to be people, now we think about how happy I will, I will think, of, I think about how happy I will be that my king has saved me not only from the guilt of sin, from the wretchedness of my past, not only the power of sin, it's indwelling in me, that will be removed at the coming of Christ in my resurrection. But I, will, I think about in that future day that not only will I be set free from the guilt of sin, the power of sin, but even the presence of sin or the possibility of sinning will be removed. I, I will be perfectly reconciled to my God. I will love him perfectly as I should. I will love his law perfectly as I should. It won't be hard to love him and to serve him. I won't have to fight against sin or against the devil. The fight will be done. It'll be over. I won't have to fear hurting anybody, letting anybody down. You imagine it? You should. Because it's going to happen, believer. Righteousness will dwell there through and through the entirety. We are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Without end. I... I, took that little breath. I mean, that was, I didn't need the air. That was more of a just, even thinking about it brings such life to my entire being because that believer is what you and I were made for in Christ. So what do we do? Verse 13, look for it. So we do, O oh God, and we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And as people who are looking for these glories to come, help us then as we've been encouraged in Peter to consider what kind of people we ought to be now. Humble, patient, kind, loving, holy. May it be said of, true of us, we pray. We thank you this morning for a little glimpse in your word by faith of the good things to come. When, oh God, you send your son for us, when our king comes again to this earth, and when you make this new earth, make this a new earth. We can't wait. We love you. And like little children, we are so excited. Truly, in faith, we love you. And we cherish your promises. May you receive all the glory as they are fulfilled. Amen.